0: Hello Frighters, I'm Holland Elise, and this is Fight or Fright. Welcome to Fight or Fright. Welcome, 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 welcome to Fight or Fright. Hello, lovely Frighters, what is up? It's your girl Holland. So this week has been a little crazy, I'm recording a little later than I normally do, and I just wanted to say that because if you hear any papers wrestling in in the audio, it's because I usually write all my notes down and then organize my thoughts into a Google Doc, but this week I was already running late and recording later than usual, so I did not get to do that. Uh, but I wanted to bring you guys something this week. So I decided instead of doing that, I will write it down. Anyway, if you hear anything, I'm sorry. It's just been like a shit show of a week. I mean, if this doesn't tell you how late I'm recording, literally two, literally today I found out that Trump has COVID. Earlier this week was the debates. The world is fucked up. Everything's crazy. Oh, it's just been whew, insanity. So instead of staying in that, insanity that is 2020, let's get into some insanity that is a serial killer. Maybe? Probably? Question mark? I don't know. We'll talk about that at the end. But this week I am going to be talking about John Norman Collins. He also goes by the name Ypsilanti Ripper, a virginal co-ed killer. He's a doozy, y'all. He's a doozy. So John Norman Collins was born John Norman Chapman, June 17th, 1947. John Norman Collins was born in Windsor, Canada. He was the youngest of three kids, and when he was young, his parents got divorced. His mom is American, or was American, so she brought him and his siblings to America. They basically just crossed the border from Windsor and went to Detroit, Michigan. There, Collins' mom or John Norman Chapman's mom, remarried a man named William Collins. That's how John became John Norman Collins. But his mom got divorced again, and to make ends meet and support the family, being a single mom at that point to three kids, she was a waitress, was doing everything she could to make money to support her family. So... Other than that, I could not find too much about John Norman Collins' childhood, but from college on, it gets, a little, it gets a little insane and intense. So John started at Central Michigan University. I think he went there for like a semester or a year, somewhere around there. And he ended up transferring to study elementary education at Eastern Michigan University. And I'm going to say hashtag same, not Eastern Michigan University, but I went to a school called McDaniel for a year. And then after that year, I transferred to Towson University in Baltimore. So I get it. I get it. When you're not feeling it, you're not feeling it. And I just want to give another disclaimer. As I go through this, this isn't necessarily my views on John Norman Collins' look, but this is just to say, I'm not saying this, this is what all the, like, all the articles and everything that I read, this is what they said. And what they said is that he was a super good-looking, all-American, basically just a hot dude. John Norman Collins, for money, modeled bare-chested in bodybuilder magazines, and he joined the Theta Chi fraternity. And that's basically what his college life was like. He was in a fraternity. He was studying elementary education. He was at EMU, Eastern Michigan University. But then a lot of weird things started happening in the Michigan area. So now I'm going to go into the victims. I want to spend some time on them because fuck John Norman Chapman or John Norman Collins. Fuck him. So Maria Flesser was 19. She was last seen walking on Eastern Michigan University, July 9th, 1967. She was found stabbed and hacked to pieces. Like it's fucked up. And when she was brought to the morgue, a man came in and asked if he could take pictures of the like mutilated, hacked up body, which is fucked up. And obviously it was denied. But like I said, she was last seen just walking around the Eastern Michigan University And then basically just disappeared until she was found. And so then, around a year later, Joan Shell, she was the next to disappear. She was last seen June 30th, 1968. She was found five days after she disappeared. And she was found raped, stabbed. She was stabbed 47 fucking times. Like, fucking overkill much? That's fucking ridiculous. But... She had her mini skirt that she was wearing twisted around her neck, like um, to strangle her. And when she was last seen on June 30th, she was seen trying to hitchhike near Eastern Michigan University. She was near the Student Union and she was trying to hitchhike. And eventually it was found out that she was last seen with John Norman Collins. But... Like I said before, he was this good looking, all American boy. So basically they just ended up taking his alibi at face value. They didn't check into it. They didn't look into it. They didn't really do anything. They kind of were just like, "Mm, "Okay, you're good. You're a good looking kid. You're an ex football player like, you know, whatever. We'll let you go. So next there was Jane Mixer. Jane Mixer was found eight months later. Jane Mixer was last seen on March 20th, 1969. She was trying to hitchhike home to Muskegon, and she was found in an Ypsilanti boneyard, strangled with nylon and shot point blank. She was a law student at Michigan, and this is when the killings kind of start to get quicker and up in speed, because... For the past couple of years, it was like 67, 68, 69. It was around like almost like every year around, give or take like 30 days. But then it starts getting a lot quicker. And so then next victim was Marilyn Skeltron. She was found days later, days after Jane Mixer. Just she was found by construction workers. She was bludgeoned. She was it's really hard to say, but there was a stick that was savagely like placed in her vagina and she was basically mutilated in that way. And she was flogged with a heavy strap before dying. So she was last seen. Like I said, it was only a couple days after Jane Mixer. It was March 24th, 1969, and she was trying to hitchhike near Arborland Shopping Center in Ann Arbor, Michigan. That was the last time she was seen before she was found days later by construction workers. And this next one is also pretty fucking tragic. The next victim was Dawn Bassam. She is 13, she was 13 years old. She was last seen near Gale Freeland roads. She was found three weeks after disappearing, half naked, strangled with electrical cord, and her sweater was found in a nearby farmhouse. And so, what happened was the killer started to taunt the police, which whoop whoop is the sound of the police whoop whoop is the sound of the beat. But um, the officers came to investigate. They came back. They were re taking another look at the farmhouse in the area that Dawn was found, and they found clothes that weren't there before, and they found five lilac flowers just kind of spread across the street or the road to the farmhouse and the farmhouse ended up being torched so all of these things were super weird because the police were like what the fuck is going on and they couldn't figure anything out and there was an outcry by the community everyone was scared they didn't know who was doing this like it could be their neighbors for all they knew they were terrified and then there was another victim, Alice Callum. She was last seen dancing at a party in Ann Arbor on June 7th, 1969. She was left in a vacant field. She was found raped, skewered, repeatedly slashed, and had a bullet to her head. The police investigation, like, I mean, it's been almost two years now that the police have been looking for the person that is doing these things. They think that they're linked. They think that the same person is doing all of these horrible things that has the community so terrified. I'm finally going to get to my final victim, Karen Beinman. So Karen was last seen at a wig store on July 23rd, 1969. She went missing from Eastern Michigan University just a few weeks after Alice Callum. She was found days later in a wooded gully. She had been strangled and beaten, her breast and stomach were scalded, and her tights were wadded up and stuck in her vagina. I mean, it's fucked up. These just keep getting worse and worse. I mean, it's just such overkill and the progression, like, everything is just getting even worse and, ugh, harder to imagine and just awful. Ugh, I can't even, ugh, it's just disgusting. Just disgusting what happened to these girls. So there were short dark hairs that were found near the body. And so police obviously collected this evidence and were like, hopefully this can help us find who did it. And like I said before, I mean, people were terrified. People were wondering if their acquaintances or their neighbors or like a family member, people suspected everyone because they didn't know who it was. They had no choice but to be like, oh, could that be the person that's doing this? Could this be the person that's doing this? And I mean, there was a multi-agency task force at that time to find who the Ypsilanti Ripper was, also the original co-ed killer. Like it was, people were in dire straits and the community was terrified. Law enforcement even resorted to using a psychic to try and figure out these crimes. It's just amazing. So, yeah, it's just it, they they're doing everything they can. I mean, at first with the second victim, John Collins was like pushed to the side because he's good-looking. But the police were trying to figure out who this was. And state police corporal Leak, I forget the first name, but Leak, he returned home from a vacation with his family. He had gone on basically just a holiday getting away for the weekend with the family, and his wife's nephew, aka John Collins, was basically animal sitting and house sitting for them while they were gone for the weekend. And when Leek got home, he found just spilled paint or just something spilled all over the basement floor. And he didn't think much of it because he was just like, eh, whatever, maybe... John John Collins just accidentally knocked something over, didn't really clean it up, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But then Leake had been informed that Collins was being questioned and was suspected as being the Ypsilanti Ripper and those things. So Leake bought back to when Collins was house-sitting for him and was like, oh yeah, I remember that paint. I need to go, like, check this out. So Leake went to his basement where he'd already cleaned up the paint, but he looked under his washer and dryer and things like that, and he was able to find hair. And eventually that hair was matched to Karen the the hairs that was found with her body. So he brought this to his colleagues, because like I said, he was a police corporal. So he brought this to his colleagues and told them about his findings in his basement and that his wife's nephew was the one that was watching their house at the time. So while the police began to look into John Collins, they found he was a chronic thief and he had a violent side. And this violent side was pointed specifically towards women. Women that wronged him, pissed him off, just all of that. They were like, if any woman did anything to upset, piss him off, harm him, anger him, whatever, he had a violent side. His... Peers and ex-girlfriends described him as an oversexed, brutal companion, and he was grossed out by women's menstrual periods, and he was super into bondage. Which, I mean, fucking you do you if you're two consenting adults, but like, from what it seems from the articles that I read, it was like, it seemed like he would sometimes take it a little too far. So, but if you're two consenting adults, whatever. You do you. I ain't here to judge. And then in June 1969, John Collins fled with a worthless check. He fled Michigan and he rented a trailer and eventually the trailer was found in California. Just a note that I said that there were like, I think there was like seven victims. No, there was seven victims in Michigan, but there is another woman that is maybe linked to him, but can't like officially be linked to John Collins. The reason that they think that it could have been him is because near the area in California where they found his trailer, there was another woman that had been raped at the same time and it kind of had the same MO as John Collins in Michigan. So when he wasn't able to pay rent, police were finally able to find him and the siege was over. This was in August 1969, and as I said a couple of times, he seemed just so unlikely. No one thought it could have been him. He was clean cut. He was good looking. He was a good student. He was a football player. I think he was like a captain football player. He was in a fraternity. He just seemed like an all-American, all-around, like, normal dude. He just, he seemed like any other kid on the outside. So... Collins was 22 at the time of the murders at EMU. Obviously around that age. I can't remember. I don't think I saw if he was 22 at like the time he was arrested or 22 at the time of the murders or 22 at the beginning. But either way, he was around 22. He was still really young. And when they caught him and brought him back and when he left Michigan for California and ran with that fake check, the killings in Ypsilanti stopped. Those slayings were done. So once he was arrested, people just assumed it was him. And police only felt that they have evidence to convict him of Karen Bindman's murder. This is because of the hair. DNA wasn't huge at the time. but the matching hair, they felt like they could convict him of that. And they'd been trying to catch him for two years. And... Eventually, he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. He didn't speak to the press until after the jury came back with his verdict and he spoke during his sentencing. He only said two things, but he, he didn't really speak to police. He didn't speak to anyone. And to this day, Neil Fink, was, who was John Collins' lawyer, said that he liked him He thought that Collins was charming, and he didn't think that the prosecution proved the case. He said that he was convicted because of the unspoken evidence, which basically is the community was terrified, and when Collins was gone in California and then arrested, the killing stopped. Fink, Neil Fink just felt like there was, someone needed to be blamed, and Collins was the suspect that ended up being blamed. So, they got their man, wiped their hands of it, and just said, he did all of these things. And until Fink's wife's death, I couldn't find, if she, I, for, I forget if she was still alive, but Fink's wife's death, she was in touch with him, either t- still in touch with him or until her death, she was every so often in touch with Collins while he was in jail because her husband was convinced that Collins was innocent, he didn't do it, and that It was only the community fear and someone needing to be blamed that got him convicted. So like I said, the jury convicted him and the day of his sentencing, John Collins said two things. These are paraphrased, it's basically what he said, but these are the paraphrased versions of what John Collins said to the court that day. He said that he believes that the jury tried, underscore, italicize, all of that, tried to give him a fair trial. He also said that what happened to him was a travesty of justice, and he hoped that one day it would be corrected. So yeah, he's a piece of shit. I'm gonna get more into my thoughts at the end, so I'm just gonna keep going, but years later, Eric Schroeder looked into the cases again. I mean, technically, Collins was only convicted of Karen Byneman, There was still six other murders that happened around that time that had not been solved, technically, in the court of law. So he wanted to take another look at these cases. He went so far as to reach out to retired officers that worked on the case. And he was called in by his higher ups and the people that were above him in the law enforcement. And they're like, give it a fucking rest, man. Just leave it alone. and Basically, they were just telling him to forget about it. They got their guy. Don't look into it. What's the point? Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> this dude ended up putting all of the case files in the back of his truck because he's like, oh, they're not going to look at it. So why don't I look at it? And he like put it in the trunk of his car and he kept looking. And one of the reasons that he kept looking was because there was one case in those seven murders that always bothered him and that case was Jane Mixer. It always bothered him because he felt that this case was different than the others. There was something about it that didn't quite fit in to the six other murders and so that always just it bothered him and it made him want to dig into it more because what if there was another person that at least one of the crimes, or what if Collins really didn't do them? So he wanted to keep looking. So in 1998, Eric Schroeder was reassigned to Lansing. He cataloged cold case evidence, and this allowed him to gain access to all of the evidence of John Collins. On top of that, this also brought Eric Schroeder to different conferences and one of these conferences took place in baton rouge and schroeder over some beers my guess you get that little tipsy feeling and start spilling shooting the shit talking to each other you know you know how it goes but he was talking to some fbi scientists and dna had obviously come a long way in 1998 from when he was arrested in 69. I mean, it came a very fucking long way. It's like night and day. And these FBI scientists were telling Schroeder about DNA and how they could now find DNA cells on different fabrics that can then be analyzed and tested. And this was like a "Ah," moment for Eric Schroeder because Jane Mixer, the one that always bothered him, she had pantyhose that had DNA on them. And the DNA was never tested because, I mean, it just DNA hadn't come that far yet. So when he heard this news, it was like a aha kind of moment. He was like, shit, I can fucking get this tested. And so that's exactly what he did. He he now, like I said, in Lansing, had access to the John Collins evidence, so he sent the Jane Mixer evidence to get tested with DNA. So once the DNA was tested, it shockingly, and, and I, I mean this literally, it did not match John Collins. It matched another piece of shit named Gary Lederman. Gary Lederman was a nurse in the 60s, and he was eventually arrested and pleaded guilty for forging prescriptions as a part of pleading guilty and obviously like taking that deal, he had to get cotton swabbed. So his DNA was put out there and it was put into the system when DNA technology became available. So he had his DNA on file. So when they took Jane Mixer's DNA, the evidence that was on the pantyhose and they tested it, it came back to Gary Lederman. And Lederman, his roommate told authorities that he remembered even that long ago that Gary Lederman had a twenty-two caliber gun, which she was found shot. So it it matched up and his DNA matched. So then this caused Eric Schroeder and other police officers to kind of reopen the cases and see if they got anything else wrong. They They had to reopen them because they're like, well, this one person that we thought belonged to John Collins doesn't. So do any of them? Do some of them? Do none of them? Like, we need to relook at all of this. And so obviously police have spoken to Collins a couple of times. And the way they say it, they say that the answers that he gives them when they ask him questions, they just seem rehearsed. So now I'm going to kind of get into my takes because... I, I I don't know how to feel with this one. I think it's safe to say that John Collins probably did commit at least one or some of those murders. To me, if Eric Schroeder only had one of the cases that bothered him and that case ended up being someone else because it was so different, I think that his intuition was like, this is different than the other ones. We need to look into this to see if it was really him. And then he found out it wasn't him. So I think there's a safe bet that the other six victims, and probably that one in California when he was on, on the lam, on the run, they, they they possibly belong to him. And he probably is the person that did them. But because DNA evidence linked one of the victims they thought to be him from another one, I do think that it was smart for them to reopen the cases so that they can look into it a little bit more. I mean, I'd hate for someone who was 22 at the time, if he didn't do them, to be in jail for something that he didn't do. But, I mean, it does say a lot that, like, one of the victims, it bothered Schroeder because it was different. I think it says a lot that once John Collins left that the murders were done, that the slaying stopped and all of that. But if you try to play devil's advocate, there are there are killers that there's a suspect, there's someone that the police thinks think is they think that they did it and they get kind of tunnel vision on that person. and so the actual killer is able to get away and they just stop or they move to another area because obviously the heat was on them then and they put they put it on another victim or they put it on another person. And so the killer will go somewhere else and do it or they'll stop or they went to jail for something else and so the killing stopped. Like there's so many different things that could have happened that it just like coincidentally could have been that it was John Collins. But it is a little weird that with the same kind of MO there was a girl killed in California. So that's a little weird to me, that in California there was a girl killed with the same kind of MO of the person in Michigan, and that girl in California was killed right near where Collins was. So it's really hard, and I do think that they should take another look into it. And having a lawyer as a roommate, it's really made me think about things like, did the prosecution prove their case? And because DNA evidence was so poor at the time and a lot of people have dark hair, a lot of people, like, you could have, like, a dog or your kid could have a friend over and then... I mean, if you looked at our apartment, it's two girls that live in my apartment and, fuck, if there's hair fucking everywhere. It doesn't necessarily mean that that hair belonged to Collins. Yes, it could have sort of matched, like... the the hair, but unless you did like a really close DNA test, which in all of the research I saw and looked at, I didn't see anything that linked those two, that like scientists actually took the two hairs to see if they were the same. So on the surface, they could have looked similar, but it doesn't necessarily mean that like that was the case. And in the article I read, I don't really know or understand why paint, Like, there was spilled paint, and then all of a sudden, once Collins starts being questioned, because they look back at the files and they see that he was last seen with the second victim, so they start questioning him again, I don't understand how that led Police Corporal Leek to be like, oh, well, blah, blah, blah. I think that's just kind of weird that that's, like, where Leek's mind went. And, like I said, because... I have a lawyer as a roommate, I've really started to like question whether the prosecution proved their case. And as much as I can sit here and say that, I think that John Collins probably was the killer of those people. Cause I just think that the California murder and the Michigan murders, I, I just feel like there's no such thing as coincidences, but should he be in jail, especially like life in prison? I just, I don't know. I don't really think so because From what I saw, what the prosecution used, there was no evidence. There wasn't even really like circumstantial evidence. The only real thing that they had, like the defense, Neil Fink said, is all they had was the the hair that wasn't even tested, it just on the surface sort of looked the same. And then, and if I'm wrong with that, I'm sorry, I looked at a couple things, but I never saw that they actually tested the hair to see. I just saw that they found a hair at Karen Byman's, and they found a hair in the basement, and that they looked similar. But I never saw that they scientifically like put them under a microscope to look and make sure they were the same. So I can't for sure say that that was evidence, like it was a scientific link. But then the other thing they had was the killing stopped when he left. So those two things, I just don't think that's enough to put someone in prison for life. It's just a little, it's just a little weak for me. Not that I don't think he did it, not that I don't think he is potentially a piece of shit, but I mean, I I don't think that the prosecution with those two things were able to prove their case. I think there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of... The community was just terrified that like, what if I'm next? What if my kid is next? I go to EMU, like all of that kind of shit. And that's just a terrifying thought like for everyone in the community. So I can I can sort of see why when the jury went they're like well the killing stopped and there's nothing going on anymore and he was caught and they kind of just are like history done we did it we got the guy cool let's move on let's move on with our lives let's try to build from this and try to forget this horrible stuff that happened but I still don't think that the prosecution proved their case I do think that John Collins did it but I don't think that the prosecution proved that he did it. But I will leave you with this. One of John Norman Collins' ex-girlfriends from high school, Bernadette Hudak, said that he was just a man of so much manners. He would open the door for you. He stood when another woman or an elderly person entered a room, but it was like a switch. And just like that, that switch could flip. And we heard that earlier, too, what other people said, that it was just like the littlest thing, especially if a woman did something to wrong him. It was the littlest thing that pissed him off. And so, I mean, what Bernadette Hudak is saying kind of goes along with what a lot of his other peers were saying. So if he does have that like quick switch, and I don't believe in coincidences, I'd do believe it's safe to say that for at least 6 of the killings they got the right person but i do understand why they have to reopen the case and look into everything again because of the fact that Gary Lederman was his dna was tied to one of the victims they suspected was John Collins so i don't know i think i think collins did it i don't think the prosecution proved it i think it's awful what happened to these women, which is why I wanted to kind of get into a little bit of their background. And I know I kind of just quickly went through this and there's probably so much, and a lot of this information I got from the Detroit Free Press. And it was like an overwhelming amount of information. But I just think it's really, it was a really interesting case. And obviously I knew the co-ed killer. I'd heard that case before I knew all about that. But then when I was looking and found the original Coed Killer, I was like, what? There's an original? And so I was like, I need to look into this. But yeah, so I will leave you with that story about Bernadetta Hudak and leave you to tell me what you think. I'd love to hear from you. You can either reach out to me on social media or email and I will give those to you at the end of the episode because right now I am getting into the Fright is Over. The Fright is Over. And so I'm literally taking this from jsonline.com. I don't know much about Nancy Grace. I don't really listen to her. I know I listen to a lot of podcasts that have very strong feelings on Nancy Grace. I don't know much about her. I really haven't listened to her, watched anything with her. But she, I did find that she has a new show called Bloodline Detectives. And in that series... They basically go into DNA profiling technology and genetic genealogy, familial searching and matching to solve cold cases like they did with the Golden State Killer. Another piece of shit. But um, <laughs> in one of her episodes of Bloodline Detectives is the 1984 murder of a Soakville teenager. The teenager's name was Tracy Hammerberg. And last year, this case was solved because of DNA evidence. So the episode is called Murder in the Snow, and it's supposed to air October 9th, which is coming soon. It's called Murder in the Snow. And Tracy Hammerberg's body was found on a driveway in the town of Grafton early December 15th, 1984. She'd been raped strangled and bludgeoned. Since then, until last year, the case had remained open, but after getting help from Los Angeles FBI forensic genetic genealogy team, wow, that's a fucking tongue twister, (laughs) investigators sent the DNA evidence from the crime to the database and using family tree connections, they were able to hone in on one person, Philip Cross. Philip Cross had died before they even figured out that he was the person that committed this crime. He overdosed in 2012. But for the Hammerberg family, at least now through this DNA and through genetic genealogy, they were able to find a match and solve her murder. And so that is this week's The Fright is Over. I love you guys. You're awesome. Thank you, Frighters. You're the best. And if you want to tell me your theories or give me any corrections or thoughts on the john norman collins case please reach out to me at fight or at gmail.com you can find me on facebook and instagram at fight or fright pod and on twitter you can find me at fight fright pod you guys are amazing thank you so much for listening please tell a friend and also i wanted to end with If you're listening and you have any spooky, crazy, eerie stories, I really, really want to give you guys a bonus episode this month since it's the spooky fucking season. I love it. I want to do some of your stories of crazy, spooky, paranormal, crime-related, just your stories, something you've been through. You can remain anonymous. I would love to hear from you guys. Email those stories and... Put put a cool subject line, but make sure that you add listener stories to the fight or fright pod at gmail.com, because I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to do the listener episode. You guys are amazing. This is Holland signing out. I love you guys. Remember, you don't have to fight this fright. Bye bye. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Fight or Fright. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at fight or fright pod and on Gmail at fightorfrightpod at gmail.com. Twitter is the only one that's a little bit different in there, and that's at fightfrightpod. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it, and it would really help me if you rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Even just spreading the word to family, friends, people you know that enjoy true crime, mysteries, paranormal, all of that kind of stuff. And this is Holland. And I'll see you next week when I tell you another crazy story. And remember, you don't have to fight this sprite.